how do we change currency? How do we make it work better for people? And there's definitely elements of you know, inequality and fairness that run into just the currency portion of it. But as I dug in more and more on you know, leaving aside the currency piece, how does housing work? How does real estate work? There, there's so much about these systems, whether you're talking about the uh, you know, laws and regulations that govern it that drive unjust, unfair outcomes, um, or also just the the modes in which a lot of business happens today in real estate are, I think, pretty far behind what can be accomplished using the technology that's now available to us. And so, proud to have Chris Lehman on the Real Finds podcast today. He's co-founder of Groma. Groma is a vertically integrated real estate investment, development, and management company combined with a tech startup using blockchain to improve the real estate investing process for both traditional investors and tenants. On the podcast, we take a deep dive into policy, regulatory, and economic challenges necessary to improve real estate and real estate investing. It's well worth a listen. Chris, thanks for hopping on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great. Thanks for having me, uh, Gordon. So Chris, uh, tell me a little bit, bit about yourself and uh, how you got into the uh, real estate game. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so um, I guess starting with background on myself, um, grew up in the Boston area, Lexington, nearby suburb, um, went to uh, college at Harvard, studied poli-sci and economics, uh, was really interested in the world of policy and complex systems and how to um, you know, figure out ways to solve big problems in the world, um, but did an internship in the Senate uh, while I was an undergrad and kind of came to the conclusion that jumping straight in into government, into policymaking at the ground level wasn't for me. There really wasn't a lot of scope <laughs> for, for, for agency or, you know, actually exercising my own judgment as opposed to, uh, you know, just following rote instructions and procedures. Um, so decided to switch to the private sector, which was definitely the right call, um, and, and started working on uh, pharma consulting, actually. So, so worked for a pharma consulting firm based out of Kendall Square in Cambridge, um, basically, we uh, primarily advised drug manufacturers on pricing strategy, um, so it, adjacent to healthcare, which is obviously an important policy area, uh, and also conferred great data analysis and general business skill development. Um, was good, worked there for three years, ultimately wanted something with a bit more of a long-term sense of progress rather than a series of disconnected projects, which I think is pretty common for consultants. Um, became convinced of the value proposition at the core of information technology, obviously not surprising given that this is in the middle of the 2010s. Uh, that was kind of just really what a lot of people were going into at that point. Um, you know, the, the scalable ratio between the work needed to build software and then its output when it can be applied in the world at basically infinite scale. Um, so I did a programming boot camp um, and switched to actually uh, doing internal strategy at Wayfair, uh, which I think is many people know about, maybe not everyone. Uh, it's kind of a you know furniture oriented, home goods oriented version of Amazon, right? So so um, connects a lot of different suppliers, big online marketplace, huge global operations, um, and so I, I worked with uh, both uh, product managers on the engineering side, software engineering, as well as with um, the actual physical service centers to come up with new tech to help um, help run more efficiently and drive better outcomes, both for Wayfair and for customers. Um, enjoyed that for a while. Um, pandemic hit. Um, so this was, you know, early 2020. Um, and I, I guess I'm kind of getting into the next question here, but, um, you know, basically huge disruption to Wayfair's business model, kind of started working on things that I wasn't quite as into there, just as a function of what the company's um, priorities were and how they shifted. 
and so this led me to start talking um, with a friend from high school, Seth Freebatch, um, founder of Level Up, and later went on to run uh, basically the U.S. division of Grubhub for a few years. Um, and, and we were talking in Q2 of 2020 um, at the time when the Fed was doing enormous quantitative easing, right? Just pumping money into the economy, keeping people employed, keeping things running, uh, you know, in the midst of people trying to figure out how to manage the economic disruption of COVID. Um, and, and we basically got to thinking about you know, this is going to keep happening, right? You know, we had huge quantitative easing in the global financial crisis. We're having it again during COVID. Meanwhile, you know, the entire period in between, we're running huge deficits at the federal level. What is this going to do to money, right? It's a lot easier politically to engage in quantitative easing, monetize the debt than it is to either cut spending or raise taxes. And so what does that mean long-term for the dollar? Uh, and so we started having these philosophical conversations about currency and, you know, what does a good currency need to work well? How have people traditionally approached this problem? Um, and ultimately kind of came to the conclusion that while it seems kind of old fashioned today, currencies backed by real assets um, are actually a great model. Um, you know, obviously gold is kind of the classic example here, um, but gold runs into a lot of issues, right? You know, it's a pretty fixed supply, which can cause deflation over time. It is not actually that relevant to the modern economy in its own right, other than its role as kind of the default assumption for currency backing. Um, and then, you know, you, you've obviously got all kinds of other cryptocurrencies out there, whether it's Bitcoin, Ether, uh, lots of other smaller ones that don't really have a clear tether to enable people to coordinate on what their value should be, which makes them really volatile. And then obviously fiat, um, because of the dynamics I just mentioned, tends to depreciate, inflate over time, um, which is not optimal for its own reasons. Uh, and that kind of led us to the idea of, you know, if you had to choose a hard asset backing for a currency, what would you go with? Uh, and, and real estate, honestly, was kind of the natural choice. Uh, it's foundational to the economy, right? There's really nothing you can do in the economy, even today, where so many things are based in the cloud, um, that doesn't involve real estate, right? Even if you're a purely work from home business that runs on the cloud, you need to live somewhere, right? It's your house, it's not an office, but it's still a real estate. And the servers actually need somewhere uh, as well, right? It's going to be a warehouse somewhere where land's cheaper, but there's still land involved. And so even these least land intensive types of economic activity require land, require property, um, which makes it really effective as a currency backing that can grow uh, or contract with the economy automatically without the need for simple coordination. A lot more philosophy I can get into there, and I'm sure we'll explore that in more detail, but that was kind of the on-ramp towards um, the company we run now, which in addition to being uh, a real estate um, you know, manager, acquirer, sponsor, et cetera, is working long-term towards building a real estate-backed currency. Look, I forget who said it, um, but um, famously, there's a saying in real estate that um, they're not making any more of it ultimately. Yeah. So um, I can understand from a, a crypto perspective how that might be an asset that you'd like to tie um, value to. In, in terms of kind of going into that, um, you said you spent some time in the Senate and then you spent some time working in the tech industry. Uh, I don't know what industry is more resilient to, or I shouldn't say resilient, more... Um, adverse to change than the Senate or the real estate industry, but they're pretty close. Um, yeah, is that what inspired you to kind of look at, at tackling kind of the slow transaction speed and, and some of the 
major inequity and inequality that's going on in the real estate industry or you know what facilitated your move into Groma? Yeah, so, so so those were definitely some some important motivations that kind of sprang up for me at least after the fact. Um, you know, I, I kind of started with this big vision of how do we change currency? How do we make it work better for people? And there's definitely elements of you know inequality and fairness that run into just the currency portion of it. But as I dug in more and more on you know leaving aside the currency piece, how does housing work? How does real estate work? There there's so much about these systems. Whether you're talking about the uh, you know, laws and regulations that govern it that drive unjust, unfair outcomes, um, or also just the the modes in which a lot of business happens today in real estate are, I think, pretty far behind what can be accomplished using the technology that's now available to us. And so um, th- there's a ton of other information, uh, you know, detail about how does Groma apply methods that are inspired by the tech boom of the past few decades and apply them to real estate to drive good outcomes for investors, good outcomes for residents, good outcomes for our team. Um, but, but then also, how does that tie into the uh, currency aspirations and, and other um, interesting financial technology um, tools that we're planning? I wanted to kind of dig into that. So what what ultimately um, did you decide on with building out Groma? I think there's some interesting dynamics to it. It's kind of a twofold company or a real ecosystem from what what I've seen. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Groma and kind of how it's grown and how it functions? For sure. Yeah. So, so I'll start with the real estate side. Um, and, you know, it, it's worth noting that Groma has a real estate business that could operate totally independently on its own, right? It has its own model. Uh, you know, it has sources of funding both for the OPCO and for the PropCo. Um, and we, we, we've we really spent a lot of time figuring out what's the right thesis for us, given our skill sets, given where we are. Um, and so w- what that thesis is basically is um, there's this asset class, small multifamily, that exists in high volumes in Boston, which is where we're based, or the greater Boston area, uh, and also in similarly higher, even higher uh, volumes in lots of other cities around the US, whether it's New York, or Chicago, or DC, Philadelphia, etc. Um, these these two to 20 unit properties, uh, residential properties that um, have been with us for 100 plus years, many of them are, you know, built from the late, uh, late 19th century through early 20th century, um, you know, tens of millions of people live in them nationwide. Um, and yet they've kind of been ignored by institutional real estate, institutional investors, for a lot of the same reasons that single family real estate was ignored by institutional investors prior to the uh, global financial crisis of 2008. Uh, and so, you know, what, what you saw there, and we actually just released a research piece on this in a thesis driven, I don't know if you read that one. Um, but basically, you saw, you know, but the housing boom, uh, you know, prices, there was a huge bubble in single family houses, suddenly it crashed. Uh, and there were all of these owners, many of which, um, you know, were, were hugely distressed in terms of debt, and just kind of had to offload massive quantities of properties over a pretty short time period. And so you got, you know, kind of a few entrepreneurs, a few companies that started buying these properties up for pennies in the dollar. And that kind of gave them room to tinker and innovate with different methods of managing these scattered site properties, um, which had previously been just far too inefficient compared to kind of the large multifamily or office space properties where management is basically just, okay, you have some on-site staff, they manage the whole building, it's very integrated, amenitized, et cetera, people are willing to pay a lot for that. 
um, whereas it was just too high of an OPEX ratio for, say, single-family homes until there was this market crash that created financial space to do that innovation and figure out um, the tech stack and the processes that um, that made it more efficient and have made it such a successful institutional asset class today. Um, and, and so basically, our thesis at Groma is, um, in a lot of ways, the COVID uh, pandemic created a similar period of not obviously the same degree of distress that the single family space uh, experienced 15 years ago, because there were a lot of government programs that went into effect immediately. But still, there was a decrease in demand for urban living that created good buying opportunities. And plus, we had the advantage of, you know, this playbook for single family rentals has been built out already in terms of how do you manage them effectively across space, uh, you know, using new tech to do things automatically uh, and, and make the acquisitions process, which is non-trivial uh, when you're dealing with smaller properties, more efficient and economical um, so that you can actually run these properties uh, and, and make them perform well. And we've built that out and I, I can share more details on, on what are the actual processes we use there. Um, but that's basically what Groma does. We, we take these small multifamily properties, acquire them efficiently, bring them up to a you know physical standard that's appropriate for the areas in which they are, uh, and, and then manage them efficiently over the full life cycle uh, and provide good outcomes for all involved parties. Um, so let me interrupt you. So why, why do you think you know Ethereum and the blockchain is ultimately the solution to improving multifamily property management? Why isn't it just like a, a CRM uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, a more efficient property management company? Right, definitely. So, so, so actually, m minor clarification there. Ethereum and, and blockchain generally is not the solution we're employing on the property management side. Um, we, we are a heavily you know, tech-focused area on the property management side, but that's really just using a lot of standard you know, web, tool, web 2 tools that have been evolved over the past 10 or so years. Um, <laughs> yeah. where, where the blockchain part comes in is actually on the investor tech side, right? So um, one of the main aspirations as we're building out our portfolio and as we're progressing through regulatory hurdles to make it easier for a wider array of people to invest in it, is that the um, kind of equilibrium today for REITs and for a lot of other real estate investment opportunities is they really don't focus that much on individual retail investors. Most of them are pretty heavily geared towards institutional or high net worth investors. Uh, and, and so as a function of that, they don't have a ton of information for people who really want to inspect what are the properties that are included in these funds how do they work? How are they performing? How is that uh, comparing to the expectations when they were purchased? And so, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a huge pension fund, you can just call people up and say, hey, I'd like to talk to an analyst for two hours and like get the full data dump and be able to send it to my team who can then do their due diligence on it. But if you're, say, just, you know, average Joe who wants to invest, you can't do that. You can't actually find the information about these things. Uh, and so one of the great advantages of blockchain is the ability to have information that's publicly accessible, verifiable to a much greater degree than you would have in a you know, traditional SQL or other database. And so we actually have that information on performance, on transaction history for each of our properties, of which there are about 50 right now, on our website, on the Ethereum blockchain that you can um, inspect and have that transparency on if you're a retail investor. Um, and that's kind of just the status quo today, right? Being able to 
have higher degree of transparency in uh, those investment decisions. But then also, um, as we push forward on the regulatory front, and when I say we, I don't mean just Roma, but the, the blockchain space broadly in terms of creating a rule set that is um, well adapted to the state of technology today, you can do a lot of really innovative um, financial tool building that allows people to gain more value out of the ownership of the, these assets than you would be able to achieve with kind of traditional finance options. So what makes a contract smart? Because like, look, I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, definitively on our podcast, we have a pretty sophisticated group. Like of our listeners, it's a high net worth group, very sophisticated real estate, uh, investors, managers, uh, some occupiers. But at the same time, not everybody knows what a, a, a smart contract is. So right. what, what is a smart contract? Yeah, for sure. So, so I, maybe also potentially worth backing up then and explaining a bit more about what is blockchain technology, how does it work, not in great technical depth, but just basically what's the value proposition. And, and so essentially what blockchain is, is a way to establish consensus around something, it, primarily transactions in the case of how it's used today, um, without the need for a trusted intermediary, right? So you have, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of people across the world who want to know who has given which assets to whom uh, and, and when and how much, et cetera. And, and blockchain using cryptographic validation methods that are not going to go into a huge amount of detail on is a way to make it trustable and verifiable that people have done that. Uh, and that's really the primary value proposition of Bitcoin and all other cryptocurrencies that have come after it. Um, but then when you get to smart contracts, which are not something that's really present uh, in any sophisticated form in Bitcoin, but is a defining feature of Ethereum and many later uh, cryptocurrencies, is that um, they enable a much broader array of functionality. Um, there's a term that's used in programming called Turing completeness, which refers to programming languages that have a really robust and broad array of functionality that can you know, do recursion, that can handle arbitrary levels of complexity as opposed to just verifying, you know, buy, sell, transfer, et cetera, um, which is more what you get on something like Bitcoin. Um, and so a smart contract then is basically a program that runs on this decentralized distributed ledger that can execute arbitrarily complex uh, transactions without the need for an intermediary. Though it's also worth noting, though, that as you increase the complexity of the transaction, you are increasing the actual uh, what they call fuel cost of the transaction, which is something that you always have to keep in mind when you're building this infrastructure. There's a huge regulatory framework that yeah. exists uh, uh, with equities and REITs, as well as real estate. And yeah. uh, in, in a previous life, you know, I, I'm, I'm a JD, so uh, I do understand that there are regulatory limitations. How have you guys navigated that? Um, and how are you guys looking long term at making that jump to uh, kind of change the regulatory world? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess worth stating up front that we have on, on one level a much simpler problem than a lot of other crypto companies in that. Um, Gromacoin, uh, you know, the, the REIT shares that we're um, using on chain are unambiguously securities, right? We've been very upfront with the SEC about this. We've had these conversations. There's really no argument, right? A REIT share is a security and these are just REIT shares on chain. So they're secure. <laughs> on chain doesn't change that. We're talking about something like Ethereum, uh, 
uh, it's much more nebulous, right? And then, you know, SEC Commissioner Gary Gensler has famously refused to say whether Ether is a security, and that's caused a lot of uh, tension and, and furor, I think, justifiably. But something like Romacoin, real estate packaged as a REIT, uh, you know, normal REIT legal structure and just on chain. So it is a security and we're, you know, that's the correct way to do things. We're playing by the book, et cetera. Uh, and, and that's where we are today. But in the future, what we actually want is a system in which the actual legal source of truth, both for the ownership of the, the REIT assets that are on chain, as well as for the properties themselves uh, that, that back the REIT, um, is on chain. So, so today we have these parallel systems, right, where we have representations of both the properties and the shares that come from those properties on chain. But then we also have the shares um, held by a traditional transfer agent. And we have the ownership of the properties uh, done with the registry of deeds, uh, you know, in physical books, as well as computer systems, right. And so the, the legal source of truth is with with the transfer agent and is with the kind of older school uh, recording methods of the registry of deeds. Um, but we're working very, very early stages um, on some elements of socializing the idea that, hey, you have this new technology here that's primary purpose is to have really effective, trustable records of ownership. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to have some of these assets have that legal source of, uh, of ownership exist on chain. Uh, we're, we're actually in the early stages of a project uh, with one of the local deed registries to work on a pilot program for the property ownership. Uh, and we can do that at the, the local level. Obviously, on the security side, you need to do that at the federal level. And uh, we're a small enough company at this point that we don't have enough weight to actually get that done, though other people are, are working on it as well. Um, but, but that's kind of where we are. We have a model that works today with the existing regulatory framework and as the framework evolves to enable the legal source of ownership to be the actual blockchain tokens that enables a lot more innovative things you can do with um, the blockchain infrastructure so in, in terms of innovating with the blockchain infrastructure yeah. um, one of the biggest innovations and one of the most interesting products i've seen um, groma develop is uh, I, I, I think you call it like liquid mortgages or um, like uh, developing liquid capital. Can you explain kind of how that system works? Because that's something I think that's very pioneering and um, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. And, and so liquid mortgage is definitely what we think will be one of the kind of most critical uh, killer apps for scaling the Groma ecosystem. Um, and, and it kind of grew from some of the earlier ideas we were talking about uh, re regarding how because of a lot of the rules, uh, laws that have created scarcity in housing, it's very difficult for a lot of people today to actually build wealth in housing the way that, say, our parents or grandparents did and, you know, brought a ton of people into the middle class and to, uh, you know, stable wealth accumulation in the U.S. over time. Um, housing prices, especially in major metro areas like Boston, um, are unaffordable to a huge number of people just because you have to save up for a down payment. Interest rates are very high right now as well. Uh, and and you, you know, in the meantime, have to be spending money on rent, which makes it harder to save in the first place. Um, so, so we came up with an idea that we call liquid mortgage or sometimes also referred to as the renter's mortgage, um, where the idea is you take people who are currently renters and give them a tool to um, incrementally build fractional wealth in real estate equity 
um, using their existing income streams. Uh, and so the way this works basically is, suppose you're a renter, suppose you're paying, say, $2,000 a month on rent. Um, your, your current situation is you take that $2,000, you give it to your landlord. In return, you receive a month worth of living space. Um, which is not necessarily a bad deal, right? Living space is really valuable and enables you to do all kinds of useful things. Um, it's nice to have a place to live. Yeah, yeah. Definitely is, yeah. <laughs> but you're not building any long-term wealth by virtue of that transaction. But, um, you know, one of the greatest strengths of the financial system in general is that, you know, if you can spot and identify a record of consistent recurring payment over time, you can do some neat things to build further value off of that. And so, what what we are proposing basically is for that renter instead of taking the two thousand dollars and giving it directly to their landlord they first use it to buy two thousand dollars worth of roma coin which again are our read shares so they now own two thousand dollars worth of a an income generating and hopefully appreciating real estate asset uh, what they then do is they take that $2,000 as collateral, uh, you, you do what's called staking it, right, which is you kind of lock it up in the blockchain ecosystem for some period of time. And you borrow $2,000 actual dollars from either us or from some third party lender um, secured against that staked uh, equity in the REIT. And then you use that $2,000 to pay your rent. Uh, so at this point, you have $2,000 worth of REIT shares, uh, you've paid your rent. And you also have $2,000 worth of debt, which nets out to zero. You're not necessarily further ahead at that point. But what then happens over time is three things. First, you have to pay interest on the debt. Um, second, you're earning dividends from the REIT shares that you're, you own. Uh, and third, those REIT shares are either appreciating or depreciating. Um, now, obviously, there's uncertainty and you can never say for sure in a given month, is it going to appreciate or depreciate? On average, uh, real estate tends to appreciate over time, uh, especially in uh, you know highly established areas like Boston. Um, but the vast majority of the time, the the sum of the depreciation, sorry, the, the sum of the appreciation and the dividends of the real estate outweighs the interest that you're paying on the debt. Uh, so you're coming out ahead on net in terms of your your equity without having to spend or invest any additional money on top of your existing rent paying habits. And so what this does is over time, you're, you're building equity in real estate, um, you're building debt in real estate, but it's generally, again, no, no guarantees, and we can talk about the, the risk calculus here, uh, generally exceeded by, by the equity. Uh, and so it enables renters to incrementally build wealth, and over time, you can get up to the point where that wealth you accumulated can be used as a down payment, or you can just continue to um, you know, do that flexibly and enjoy the geographic flexibility of renting uh, while uh, also taking advantage of the uh, ownership value of the real estate. So, yeah, I'd be interested as, you know, someone who does real estate investment and works with investors to dive into some of that risk calculus. And um, I know historically real estate does rise and it also falls, but usually it does rise. Yep. Um, one, one of the Calculuses. I'm curious on, and and I can see this, you know, potentially being beneficial in this current period. Is we live in a period right now where we see uh, the gap between renters and buyers is the greatest it's ever been, at least in yeah. recorded real estate history. Is that part of the calculus in terms of looking at historic rates and and kind of understanding um, if the uh, investment is generally going to work out or um, 
where do some of your historical data and some of your calculus come from? Because I'm, I'm sure you did substantial research before putting this together. Yeah. Uh, and, and just to clarify, when you say the gap between renters and buyers, are, are, are you talking about the gap between mortgage payments um, and, and rental payments for comparable properties? Or are you talking about wealth disparities between the two groups? I'm talking about the gap between um, rental payments and uh, residential mortgage payments um, and 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 or purchase prices basically um, is the greatest it ever it's ever been circa I, I, the last time that data came out was in November so you know relatively relatively recent right yeah yeah we we we've seen that as well right and so it shows that the the payments for a mortgage are exceeding those required for comparable rent by by the greatest degree in you know however many decades um, which is obviously a problem for people who are looking to buy wealth. Uh, and so, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, we, we came up with the idea for liquid mortgage, uh, you know, way back in 2020, 2021, when interest rates were a lot lower. So, so that dynamic wasn't quite in play then. But now that that dynamic is in play, um, you know, it, it definitely can contribute to the urgency of, of having this kind of solution. You know, worth noting as well, though, that the, the math of the liquid mortgage is reasonably um, sensitive to interest rates, right? You know, your, your your biggest liability is the interest rates you're paying on that debt. And so higher interest rates are, um, you know, still applying to liquid mortgagers the same way they would to people engaging in a traditional mortgage. Um, but also worth noting that typically, uh, and, you know, again, it's not a perfect relationship, but typically cap rates correlate positively with interest rates because of the effective interest rates on the actual uh, baseline asset value. So uh, to the degree that interest rates push up uh, the, the costs of debt service, they also do tend to uh, positively impact the, uh, the, the dividends that are coming out of those assets as well. So what's the calculus from a, a landlord or an owner's perspective in uh, working with the Groma model, because um, is that uh, based around kind of the manufactured home rent to own model, where you create you know a better sense of uh, a better sense of ownership and where you're living, uh, and you know conversely reduce liabilities. Where does that um, model come from, either philosophically or economically? Yeah, so so I mean, what, one of the neat things about liquid mortgage is that it's not actually really any different from the perspective of the landlord per se, right? You could be doing this as a resident in one of Groma's properties, in which case you do start to take advantage of some of those dynamics you're referring to, which I'll get into in a sec. Um, but you could also be somebody who's in, say, Texas or California or New York, right, where you're not actually living in one of Groma's properties. And so re really, you know, your, your landlord doesn't even necessarily have any visibility into this, you know, that they're still getting their $2,000 a month. Uh, you know, it's coming from you. The fact that it originally then came from a lender isn't uh, that relevant to them, frankly. Um, but um, as you're pointing out, and this is what we think would be, you know, as our ecosystem grows and takes up a larger percentage of residential properties in the country and eventually maybe the world, um, you, you do actually have that kind of ownership mentality that starts to come in, right? Whereas if I'm purely a tenant, which is what most renters are today, um, you, you, you don't really have as much skin in the game in terms of the maintenance of the building you're living in, because that liability is entirely on the part of the landlord, right? If something breaks, uh, you know, you, you just call someone to fix it. You, you might be less motivated to, uh, you know, do something to fix it yourself that might be lower cost, or you, uh, or you know, 
be even slightly more careful about you know how you're treating things in the building. Um, whereas if you have an equity stake in the building that you're living in, even if it's a relatively small one, you do feel that sense of ownership. And so you 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 are more invested, literally and figuratively, in how that building's performing, um, which is broadly good for society. Um, Vitalik Buterin, um, who, um, for, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, is the uh, founder and kind of the main guy behind Ethereum, pointed this out uh, in a recent talk, right? You know, we we, we have this kind of really bifurcated system in terms of property ownership today, where you have one portion of the population, homeowners, who take out these hugely leveraged bets on their primary assets, their homes, uh, and, and are then rationally really, really focused on pushing for whatever policy they can to maximize the value of that home, often to the detriment of the broader ecosystem, right? You're talking about zoning laws and other restrictions on new building that people engage in to protect these highly leveraged assets that they have. Um, and then on the other side, you have people, renters, who may not have any ownership to stake in the community they live in and might push for myopic policies in the other direction that are to their short-term interest, um, but may not actually grow uh, and make more prosperous the communities they're living in. And so if you can bridge that gap by kind of creating this middle position where you have people who own a moderate amount of um, equity in real estate across a more diversified pool of assets, um, you, you take a more holistic view and your interests are more aligned with those of society more broadly. As somebody who I don't work personally in the multifamily space, um, our portfolio is predominantly commercial industrial office, um, commercial um, flex, and commercial medical. But I, I do have a lot of uh, investors that do work in the multifamily space. And I, I can say definitively, even in the commercial space, those that actually live in the building or work in the building on a daily basis, even with the most proactive property management group, tend to know the building the best. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see that applied from a uh, totally different perspective in terms of betting basically on um, where you're renting. Um, I, I think that is something that has a tremendous amount of merit to it. Um, I'm curious. Um, in terms of that, uh, from a regulatory perspective, yep. um, how have you seen the regulatory world look at that? Um, because from from principles, it makes sense. Um, but you know, when you get the government and lawyers in the way, uh, there's always interesting things that happen. Right. Uh, and, and to be clear, when you say the regulatory side of that, do you mean in terms of simply the, the decentralized ownership of the assets? Do you mean the liquid mortgage, uh, other elements of this? Well, why don't we tackle it all? So um, so um, let's start off with the decentralized uh, nature of uh, NFTs, cryptocurrency, and applying it to property that's typically more centralized, at, at least from a mortgage perspective. Right. Yeah. So, so on the regulatory side, uh, you know, because what we're selling are are REIT shares, the the same laws apply there as would with other REIT shares. So, so currently, um, the Gromer REIT is under uh, Reg 506C, uh, which means we're able to engage in general solicitation, but only sell to accredited investors, um, which is a big share of the population, obviously, but it's still a minority, uh, and so. 
Um, longer term, we obviously want to make this available to the people who would be helped the most by it, right? People who are, you know, moderate or lower income and, and who are more likely to be renters in the first place. Uh, and so um, for, for that, we're, we're planning on launching a, what we call a reg, or not what we call, what is called a reg CF, reg crowdfunding. We expect that to go live probably in uh, Q2 2024, uh, which enables us to sell Roma coins to anyone. Um, anyone who passes the required KYC AML, which is at know your customer anti-money laundering laws that govern all security sales in the US, <laughs> uh, which doesn't really uh, impede the vast majority of people. Um, and th that should all work fine under the existing regulatory framework. Uh, now, again, there, there, there are some barriers to making the legal um, source of ownership, the actual blockchain tokens, whether they're the NFTs or the uh, fungible tokens that represent the REIT shares. Uh, but that part of it doesn't actually prevent people from taking part in the fractionalized ownership under the existing laws. Um, now, it, it definitely gets easier to run the smart contract that we would uh, use to enable something like the liquid mortgage if merely the exchange of um, ownership shares in the REIT um, sorry, if merely the changing uh, ownership of fungible tokens also constituted the ownership sh shares in the REIT, um, we, we can do it without that. We would just need to engage in both processes in parallel with all of the transaction costs that that entails on the uh, transfer agent and you know institutional financial side. Um, but it becomes a lot more efficient and, and quick from both a cost and time perspective if it's just all happening on chain. And that's something where we, we would want some level of, of regulatory change to help out with that. Um, th there's also just the fact that, you know, especially when you're designing a relatively novel lending product, um, th there's a whole other side of the regulatory equation, right, in terms of consumer financial protection, where you're going to want to demonstrate that, you know, this isn't some kind of predatory loan product. It's something that is, uh, you know, analogous in a lot of ways, really, to a traditional mortgage, right, where, you know, I, I think many people may not be aware of this, you know, Perhaps your listeners are more likely to be so, but uh, you know the, the the average LTV of a residential mortgage in the U.S. is ninety three percent, I think, uh, and, and so it's it, it's really quite high, right? And and not dissimilar to what we we're suggesting here. The main difference is that uh, we're doing it with uh, diversified assets and, and, and assets that are a, a lot more liquid than a single home, which de-risks the transaction. We think from a lender's perspective as well as from uh, the actual borrower. I'm, look, I'm a generally bullish um, individual on um, tokenization of the real estate industry, and yep. um, anybody who's listened to the podcast has has seen me bring on other individuals who are trying to tokenize elements of real estate. But many of the token and crypto bears, uh, one of the biggest pushbacks that they say is uh, the alienation of uh, NFTs or tokens right. is a uh, potential regulatory or potential um, economic issue that that um, we could see moving forward. What methods or um, uh, uh, relatively uh, functional uh, uh, guardrails do you have in place for alienation of your tokens or your NFTs. When you say alienation of the tokens or NFTs, are you referring to the, I guess, 
decreasing the brand value of the term NFT because of some of the speculative bubbles around NFTs or, or something else? I'm referring to, uh, let's say you have your token, your um, Ethereum 20 token, yep. and it's in, uh, it's in cold storage somewhere, yep. and you lose it. Oh, yes. um, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I see what you're asking. Yeah, so, so uh, very good question, uh, and you know that's something that for for some people is a a big benefit of kind of traditional crypto norms, right? Where it's very, very high stakes, very, very self custodied. Uh, you know, kind of high risk because you're, uh, you know, the buck stops with you, the the holder of that cold storage wallet. Um, some people are very up for that. Other people's less so. Uh, other people just really want the kind of um, managed garden approach of, say, a traditional brokerage account uh, or even like a, a crypto custodian like Coinbase that does all of that for you and has very well built out procedures. Uh, be, because we're ultimately trying to target a very wide range of, of customers, including a lot of people who are not really as hardcore crypto fan uh, as some of the earlier adopters, um, our default approach to that kind of thing is going to be custody by Groma, uh, where, where basically we manage everything for you. We have you know very high cybersecurity standards here, uh, and, and and there's very little risk of that if we are doing that management. Now, there still obviously is that subset of the population that has kind of the hardcore crypto ethos of if it's not your wallet, it's not your coins. Uh, <laughs> for those people, you know, we, we, we offer you the opportunity to opt out of custody by Groma and to do it all yourself. But, you know, we'll have lots of warnings saying, you know, hey, I accept personal responsibility for this that you have to go through. So unwitting people don't <laughs> run into that scenario. So, so very good question. Something we thought a lot about. Yeah, like I, I, I just heard so many horror stories. I have a, I have a good friend who, uh, he lost like three Bitcoin, um, three, yeah, three full Bitcoin. We're not yeah, talking about yeah. fractional shares um, in a storage file, and he doesn't know the password anymore. And he's just like, I've got two entries left, and I don't know what it is. So, um, so I, that's something that I think is near and dear to the hearts of anybody who understands the technology. Um, so, look. I, it's been great thus far, but I think we have to get to our final four. And our final four is always a great way to get to know you a little bit more, Chris, and kind of get in depth into where you see not only the industry going, but also a great way to give advice to young entrepreneurs or individuals in the real estate space. So the first and one of my favorite questions is 10 years from now, where do you think you see the real estate industry going? Yeah, great, great question, uh, and, and it's one that I, you know I, I've thought a lot about in general. In addition to um, you know ha having heard this on, on previous episodes of the podcast, um, I think I actually just started reading a, a great book on a kind of broader version of this theme called uh, the, the Corporation in the Twentieth Century um, by I think Richard Langlois, uh, and, and he makes the point that there have been cycles over the course of history where um, in in times of more or in times of less robust market conditions and, and technological solutions. And sorry, we've got a truck going by outside. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, That's urban life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, it, it tends to favor really high degrees of centralization within corporations, right? Because if transaction costs are high, firms, corporations are a really way to get around that, a really good way to get around that. But um, as we're seeing, you know, over the past few decades in terms of financial industry and then over the past uh, you know decade decade and a half in terms of the tech side 
there's a huge variety of tools out there now that reduce the transaction costs of handling um, a, a real estate management ecosystem across a variety of separate parties. Um, so as those both financial and technological tools get better, I think we're going to see a lot of decentralization in real estate management, right? A lot more reliance on gig economy models to reduce costs, increase flexibility, uh, and, and have a, a more competitive uh, environment for that than we see today with a lot of centralized operators. Um, and, and that's even before you get to, uh, you know, kind of the really new stuff, right, on, on the AI front, where, uh, you know, many people, including Roma, and I can talk a little bit about that, um, are, are figuring out how you can apply AI to property management, um, where, you know, you have a lot of issues that crop up that are pretty predictable, re repetitive, and where, you know, if you feed huge amounts of data into a computer model, you can get to the point where, if you know a tenant has a leaky faucet, picks up the phone, calls you, um, that you know machine learning model might be just as good at diagnosing the problem and you know routing the appropriate solution than an actual human, which allows you to scale these systems a lot more cost effectively than you would um, if everything requires a you know human to pick up the phone, engage in even if it's just a you know thirty second conversation. That's still time that elapses, um, you know, both from a customer satisfaction perspective and in terms of how many employees you need to. Um, scale of business that you can um, optimize with uh, with machine intelligence, basically. So, so, so I think um, decentralization and um, the, the the rise of AI and property management are going to be the two I'll go with there. Look, we've uh, we've had a number of guests come on um, talking about scalability and and centralizing uh, aspects to provide for decentralization and. Um, Sometimes when um, it sounds like it's a broken record and it's going over and over again, that that often means that's maybe the number one pain point in the industry. Yep. Um, so. so looking forward, um, we've already done, but let's take a step back. And uh, one of my favorite questions, because we bring on overwhelmingly individuals who are very successful and have, have done amazing things in real estate or business or, or just life in general. Um, is we want to give a little bit of advice to that younger individual who might not have everything figured out. And so I'm curious if, you know, you're graduating college, what little tidbit of advice would you have given yourself as you're uh, walking out the door with your diploma? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I, ideally, I would say, you know, go back a few more years and tell me to uh, study computer science or finance in college. <laughs> but, but, but if we're doing this as I'm walking out the door, um, I would say, you know, look, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're doing these jobs, right? I, I actually initially did teach for America and then went into consulting, but uh, you know, you've got a decent amount of free time while you're doing that and really cranking on independent study of computer science or finance is what I would recommend there. Right. You know, th these are um, two disciplines to, I guess, frameworks for understanding the world that are incredibly powerful and can be applied to basically anything, right? Real estate's one example, but I don't think there's an industry or career out there that doesn't benefit from the mindset um, that computer science gives you in terms of understanding how information works, how automation works, how you can scale these kinds of processes. Uh, and, and then finance, right, in terms of, you know, being able to, you know, you, Given that you have quantified abstracted forms of value, whether it's money or some other kind of asset, how can you restructure or create new forms of ownership and obligation to enable people to better coordinate across time? Um, and 
you know, while I started figuring out the CES stuff a little bit earlier on, it wasn't really until I came to Groma that I started to understand the diversity of financial tools that are out there and, and how much they can shape your understanding of, of how value works and how you can, uh, you know, wring additional efficiency out of a, you know, existing physical system just by understanding better the, these abstract flows of value. Um, so I, I think those would be my advice, you know, both of which are, you know, as a real estate slash tech company, highly relevant to Groma. Um, but even if I ended up deciding not to go into real estate, it would have been really, really useful. Look, uh, every company that uh, I work with today that's reasonably successful or uh, even our own has a tech element to it. I know for us, when we were growing out our business and our brokerage side and our investment arms, I ended up learning basic Python code so I could work with our investors and work with our engineers. And just that mindset that you get from understanding the scalability of systems and really understanding how systems work and algorithms work within the process, yep. I think is critical for every investor who's running a, a, a large program or any operator who's running a business. So I think that's terrific advice. Um, one of the number one way, one ways we give advice on this podcast is through uh, giving recommended books, because we find books help transform your mind, help give you a different perspective on the world and a little bit of information too, that maybe you can't get easily from chat GPT. So um, in terms of uh, understanding, uh, what books we should be recommending. Is there is there a book that you would recommend any listener that's uh, listening today? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if I had to do just one, I would go with uh, Radical Markets by Eric Posner and Glenn Weil. Um, it is it, it touches on real estate. It isn't really a real estate book or even a business book per se. It's more a book about how to re-engineer um, systems around better sets of incentives to drive better outcomes. Um, what, one of the areas in which this is the most relevant uh, and plays a, a non-trivial role in some of the kind of future, more aspirational elements of Groma is in rethinking how um, you could conceivably engineer property rights to encourage um, better and more efficient use of systems. That, that, um, that there's something that they call Harburger taxation, which is... Um, I don't know, I probably can't give the, the, the full economic logic behind it, but, um, or at least not in this time frame. But uh, the, the, the idea is you, you have a lot of assets that are um, much more valuable than the current use they're put to um, implies. And this can often lead to, I think, societally suboptimal outcomes where uh, you know, the classic example is, let's say, you know, you're, you want to build a new railroad or you want to build um, some other uh, re really ambitious large scale project that adds a lot of value. But, you know, if you have like one stickler who, you know, would need to sell their land in order for this kind of thing, um, you um, really can be held hostage by, by that one thing. Um, but at the same time, you want to respect people's property rights. You know, eminent domain has been used a lot and often in really bad ways. And you don't want to just say, okay, property rights are invalid. We'll take your land and give you a pittance for it and like go screw yourself, right? That, that, that's not optimal either. And so you can incentivize um, a different equilibrium of, of how people buy and sell properties by 
uh, what's called um, self-assessed licenses sold at auction. Uh, the, the acronym there is SALSA, which is fun. Um, and and <laughs> what, that, what, what that means is that, say, you know, I'm a property owner, I own a building somewhere, and um, I would then set what I think the price of that building is and am taxed in a fixed ratio relative to that price. But with the caveat that if somebody else is willing to pay more than the price I set, they just automatically get it, right? I have to sell to them. And so this incentivizes me to not set too low of a price and give myself too low a rate of taxation, you know, being dishonest about how I actually value the property. Um, but also, you know, if you set the property value too high such that nobody can ever buy it, um, you're also taxing yourself very heavily. So you, you're actually incentivized to set the value of that property at how you truly value it. And this doesn't strictly guarantee, but it makes it much more likely that a, a given piece of property ends up in the hands of the people who actually value it the most, um, which is a really neat system. And, and there's a lot more other uh, things in that book that I would recommend. So, so yeah, that, that's my call, Radical Markets. Look, I've got to check it out. It sounds like um, uh, political and economic game theory meets uh, yep. uh, a, law, a law school exam hypo. So um, <laughs> that's right up my alley. Um, and uh, the last question uh, before we get to the end of the podcast, and this is the whole reason for the podcast, um, we find that individuals who are working in and around the industry tend to have some of the greatest insight into not only the industry, but who else we should be listening to. And so, Chris, this is the, this is the reason for the podcast. Who should we bring on next? Yeah. Um, so, so. Great question. And I, I think probably one of the most interesting projects I'm aware of in general out there that also happens to have a pretty heavy real estate element um, is uh, Prospera in Honduras. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's a uh, special economic zone on the island of Roatan on the Caribbean coast of Honduras, um, where, where basically they, they've been given latitude to come up with their own bespoke regulatory framework um, that's, you know, to some degree independent from the central government that enables a huge amount of business innovation there, uh, a lot of which has ended up being real estate, right, as they expect more and more entrepreneurs to come to this space in order to start companies that can really take advantage of the regulatory framework they've created. Um, you know, a, a natural consequence of that is the value of the land there and the value of the buildings there goes up. And so they've done some pretty ambitious development projects there already and are, are continuing to do more as demand for the space grows. Um, fascinating project. There's, there's a ton more detail there that we probably don't have time to get into. But um, if you're looking for someone else, I, I would recommend reaching out to uh, Eric Bremen, who's their CEO. I got to reach out to Eric then. Thank you so much. So um, before we finish, there's one last question. And it's also a very important question. And it's Chris, What's the best way that somebody who listens to the podcast um, can get in contact with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably just email me. Uh, my, my email is very simple. It's chris, uh, C-H-R-I-S, at groma.com. Groma is G-R-O-M-A. Um, happy to answer any questions you have. Uh, our, our white paper is, I think, probably just about to be uh, fully moved out of beta and into public. But uh, if you ask me, I'll, I'll be happy to send along uh, the password to access it. Chris, uh, we may end up putting uh, some of that information down in our YouTube and on our uh, podcast. But thank you so very much for coming on. Uh, we learned a lot and it's a it's an interesting product. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for hosting, Gordon. A lot of fun. 
Thanks again to Chris. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a comment, and a review. Your interactions and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lanfear of the Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.